This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we empower hypermobile dancers and athletes through education and community. This is Jennifer Milner here today with my co-host, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we dive into our conversation, we would like to remind you about how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, family, and providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. Today, I am chatting with the hypermobility MD, Linda Bluestein. She's a former ballet dancer and integrative pain medicine physician. She specializes in treating dancers and others with hypermobility disorders and other conditions involving persistent pain. In addition to her private practice, Hypermobility MD, Dr. Bluestein is the founder and co-host of this podcast, Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, and was the former co-host as well as co-founder of Hypermobility Happy Hour. Linda is the Director of Education for the nonprofit EDS Wellness Incorporated. She has published a number of original research papers, presents work at national and international conferences, and is a contributing author for the book Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders. Dr. Bluestein is a member of the International Consortium on EDS and HSD, Allergy and Immunology Working Group, IADAMS Promotion Committee, Board of Directors Bridge Dance Project, and the Resources Committee for the Dance Healthy Alliance of Canada. Dr. Bluestein, today we're chatting about pain and hypermobility, something most people don't associate with hypermobility. So why are we having this conversation? Are hypermobility disorders painful? Yes, they are. And it is an important conversation because a lot of patients get dismissed because their providers don't recognize that these conditions are painful. Their families don't recognize that these conditions are painful or you know, other people that are supporting them. And EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes and HSD, hypermobility spectrum disorders are amongst the most painful disorders that we actually treat in medicine. They can be extremely painful and the pain can be a lifelong thing. Now that doesn't mean we don't have solutions for it or ways that we can improve quality of life, but pain is extremely common in these conditions. When we've done studies looking at how frequently people note pain as one of the symptoms amongst people with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we know that there's like 90 plus percent um, people who do complain of chronic pain. So it can come from a variety of different places. It can be a lifelong thing, but this is definitely something that is a significant problem. People with these conditions can have multiple different types of pain. They can have um, what's called nociceptive pain, they can have neuropathic pain, and they can have um, centrally mediated pain. And so it can make it hard to treat you know, the pain and also mast cell activation syndrome can contribute to the pain because mast cells and the nerve endings lie very, very close to each other. And mast cells are one of the first responders of the immune system. 
So when mast cells degranulate, when they get activated and they, they degranulate, those chemicals can act on the nerve endings and increase pain. So we know that this is one of the contributing factors also to complex regional pain syndrome, which occurs more commonly in people with EDS and related disorders. So we know that mast cell activation syndrome is also an inflammatory condition. And we know that inflammation is a common problem with, with pain. Mm. So I wanna make sure I understood you correctly. You're saying that 90% of people with hypermobile EDS say that they have some sort of chronic pain. Yes. So 90% of people with hypermobile EDS experience some sort of chronic pain. I just want people to ex understand that because when we talk about uh, hypermobile EDS, and even when we talk about the comorbidities that go with it, we're not usually talking about living with a low level of constant pain. That's not something that generally comes up first in the conversation, right? And yet 90%, that's, I mean, that's huge. That's overwhelming. So it's really important that people see that that is not only common, but extremely common. And so it is 100% normal if they're feeling that and something that they can talk about. Right, right. And some, you know, I say 90 plus percent, some of the studies show mm -hmm. 90%, some others show 95%. And in some it's 100%. So, wow. you know, now these are people that already have the diagnosis of hypermobile EDS. But we know that this is an extremely common problem. And it is often the presenting symptom. And we know that mm. pain once a person has one pain problem, unfortunately, they are more likely to have another pain problem. So one of the ways that we can address chronic pain is by addressing someone's pain much, much earlier in the process, rather than waiting until they have chronic pain in multiple parts of their body. So we can really do a lot if we can be more proactive and more preventative and you know, really take this very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So that to me is so helpful for someone walking around with EDS to be able to say, oh, I've got a little pain today. And also I have EDS. They can say, oh, I have some pain today. That is probably part of my EDS. Let's bring that up and let's bring that into the conversation sooner rather than later. Definitely. And I do want to mention while we're talking about EDS that whether you have EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or HSD, hypermobility spectrum disorder, they, are, they can be equally serious. In fact, someone can have HSD and have more pain than someone who has EDS. I feel like once the 2017 criteria came out and a lot of people have been reclassified as having HSD because they no longer meet this more strict criteria for hypermobile EDS, a lot of people are very upset and a lot of their healthcare practitioners, I think are not taking this as seriously as they need to. Mm -hmm. HSD can be just as painful. HSD can be just as disabling as, as EDS. So we need to validate these people's experience regardless of which label that they have because these conditions can affect every single aspect of a person's life. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things we talk about when we talk about HSD or EDS is how each person with a diagnosis experiences things differently. There's no clear cookie cutter, right? right? So having said that, but also acknowledging that pain is a very big part of it, what factors might influence how much pain a person would experience? So one of the things that I think is not discussed 
at, at all often enough is the genetic factors that go into how much pain a person experiences. We mm -hmm. know that there are huge genetic differences and some people can have significant amounts of damage in their body. They can have all kinds of tissue damage going on in their body, yet they experience very little pain. And other people, they can feel, you know, every cell that is just slightly out of alignment, you know, and most people who have EDS, or at least what that are diagnosed with EDS fall into that latter category, unfortunately. And we know that genetic differences can also contribute to differences in levels of inflammation. So a person could be genetically predisposed towards having more pain. A person can be genetically predisposed towards having more inflammation. And in some of my patients, when I have done this kind of genetic testing, what's called single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP testing, and they get the results back and they see, oh, I have this abnormality or that I'm sorry, I shouldn't really call it an abnormality. It's more variance, you know, what makes me different from you, different from someone else. But when they get that, those results back and they see that actually, you know, on paper, it's very validating. It really makes them realize, you know, this is, this is something that I need to cope with. This is something that I need to figure out how to deal with. But they don't feel as guilty, I think, oftentimes as they did going into it. Why? can I not get this under better control? Why am I still experiencing so much pain? I know other people are walking around without so much pain. Why am I having so much pain? Then they find out about these genetic differences and they say, oh, well, this is definitely part of the picture. So I think that's one really important thing that it, you know, we just don't see discussed very often. Some of the other things that make a difference are prior experiences. So if you've had pain in the past, especially poorly controlled pain, it's more likely that you're going to have pain in the future. And so um, we know that the brain becomes, the brain and the nervous system becomes more sensitive to pain once there's been other pain experiences. And so it's really important to, if you have an injury, to address it immediately, take good care of it, try to get you know, good pain control because we, we know that there's the saying pain begets pain. And it really is true. Once you have one chronic pain problem, you're more likely to get another one. So we really wanna get a handle on things sooner rather than later. Um, we also know that coping makes a huge difference. And I'm sure you've seen this with some of your dancers. So maybe a performance is coming up and they, they feel capable of still performing even though they have an injury that they've kind of been working through and they're having some pain, but they feel capable. So they feel like they can cope. They feel like they're still able to cope. They have a certain level of pain, but once it, exceeds their level of coping, they feel like they can't cope with it. Now, all of a sudden their pain just becomes much, much greater. And this is true for, for all of us, whether we are, you know, dancers with a performance coming up or, or anyone else, if we are experiencing something else in our life that we feel like we can't cope with, we will experience more pain because we have less ability to cope with that pain. We know that different regions of the brain will process the pain and amplify it sometimes and dampen it other times. And we know that people that have fibromyalgia, which is the classic central sensitization syndrome, we know that those people have, um, they actually have decreased connectivity in the parts of the brain that dampen pain signals, and they have increased connectivity in parts of the brain that amplify pain signals. So these are some factors that I think are just really not um, thought about. Another 
thing that I think really isn't thought about enough is that stress increases pain regardless of the source of the pain. I think sometimes people think that there's two types of pain, real pain and not real pain. It's all real. All pain is real, especially if you have EDS, HSD, you know, uh, Marfan. If, if you have Marfan syndrome and one of these other hypermobility conditions, connective tissue disorders, then yes, pain is a real part of your life probably. All pain is real. Pain is always a subjective experience and is in the eye of the beholder. Stress will always make that pain more significant, regardless of where the pain is coming from. And I think that's a common misconception that if the pain makes the, if, excuse me, if the stress makes the pain worse, then, oh, it's all in their head. So the family might think that, the providers might think that, and that's simply not the case. Another thing that affects how much pain a person feels is mood. So whether a person has anxiety or depression or whether they're experiencing fear, which increases suffering, regardless of what's causing the pain, if you have problems with your mood, that also increases pain. And you and I did an interview with Dr. Bonnie Robson, and she provided some really excellent strategies for people to develop psychological skills to deal with stress. And this is really super important. We also recently interviewed Dr. Beth Darnell, and she does a lot of really fantastic work in the space of um, you know, psychological treatment for pain. And this has to go hand in hand because all of these things are closely related. Another thing that I think people don't always appreciate is things like nutrient deficiencies. These are very, very common with uh, persistent pain and can definitely be a significant factor. So you and I interviewed Kristen Koskinen a couple of times, and I would also you know, strongly recommend that people listen to those episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Because a lot of times people think um, I'm experiencing pain in my ankle. I didn't twist it. I don't know why I'm having pain. It must not be real, right? And then ignore it. And as you said, it's so important to address pain early in the process. And so to acknowledge that and try to try to bring that into the conversation early is really, really important. So um, talking about missing things, um, missing those little signals that come up, what are some of the frequently missed contributors to chronic pain? So I think that hypermobility is probably the biggest missed contributor to chronic pain. I would love for, I know there are physicians that listen to this podcast and I am hoping that there are ones listening right now and I would beg you to please, anytime someone comes into your office, it doesn't matter if you are a urologist, a orthopedic surgeon, if you are a primary care provider, if you are a you know, dermatologist, no matter what kind of practitioner you are, if you have somebody coming into your office that is complaining of some type of pain, you can be a gastroenterologist and they're complaining of abdominal pain, any type of pain complaint I would really like for everyone to be thinking, could hypermobility be a contributing factor here? And it doesn't need to be like they're hypermobile now, but were they in the past? And we've talked before about the five point questionnaire because that is a quick and dirty way for people to identify joint hypermobility. So it's just five simple questions that asks things from a historical perspective, as well as what's going on currently. And so I would, love for all providers to ask those questions when the person is, you know, coming in for an evaluation, especially if they haven't been able to get to the 
the bottom of it, if they haven't been able to figure out what's causing pain in this person, mm -hmm. then I think it's especially important to think about, you know, could this be a contributing factor? Because we know that when you consider the entire basket of hypermobility disorders, they're, they're not rare. Some of the subtypes of EDS are ultra, ultra rare. But when you consider all of the different conditions that are related to hypermobility, they're not rare. So we wanna make sure that we are you know, looking for these, that we are finding these, that we are addressing the, their contribution to this person's pain problem. Another really important contributor to um, chronic pain is we just talked about mood, but also sleep. And I like to think of these as occurring, like, you know, being like points of a triangle, pain, sleep, and mood. And as we know with a triangle, there's lines that connect the points. So all of these are connected and they impact each other. So if someone has a bad night of sleep, they are going to have more pain the next day. It's like a virtually an automatic thing. And if someone has more pain, they are likely to have worse sleep. So this is where it can really turn into a very challenging catch 22 because they have pain. So then they get bad sleep, which makes them have more pain. And so that's something that we definitely need to address. The exact same thing happens with mood. You know, if, per, if a person has depression or anxiety, that increases their pain. Well, then more pain also increases depression and anxiety, which also increases the pain. So it kind of turns into a vicious cycle. And the pain and mood and sleep all are connected to each other. So those are another really important um, you know, component to be considering. And then the last one I wanna mention is neuroplasticity. And that is the ability of the brain to change over time. We used to think that the brain changed a lot in childhood, but basically after childhood, we thought that the brain basically you know, stayed static. And now we know that that's simply not the case. We know that the brain changes quite significantly. Every thought we have, every action we take strengthens the connections in our brain. So if we focus on the pain and keep focusing on the pain and focusing on the pain, and we keep thinking about the pain, and we, that's gonna strengthen those connections. If instead we are able to start working on solutions and start looking towards things that will help lessen our pain, that will help that positivity and having that resource, um, being able to address inflammation, for example, that's a really common um, approach that I take in treating my patients is looking at inflammation and how much could this be contributing to your pain and I like to really approach things from that direction so that we're not continuing to focus so much on the pain, so that we're trying to make these other positive pathways. We're trying to reinforce mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So trying to reinforce the positive pathways rather than the negative pathways, just sort of shifting where our gaze is focused. Right. That makes sense. So what are sort of the most common myths or misunderstandings about chronic pain? I would say the most common one is that chronic pain is just acute pain, but longer. So we know that chronic pain, depending on the source that you look at, it used to be considered six months, pain that was present for six months or longer. And now a lot of the definitions have changed to more like three months. But regardless of which definition that you use, we know that the brain actually undergoes changes with chronic pain. And so what ends up happening is people think, why hasn't anything fixed my pain yet? Because they're looking for one thing 
to fix their pain. And maybe early on, if the pain had been properly diagnosed, if the source of the pain had been addressed right away and treated, then the pain would have been completely resolved. And maybe it could have been resolved with one more simple uh, you know, strategy. But instead, as the pain is present for longer and longer, it kind of becomes like layers of an onion. And if you think about, you know, anyone who has peeled layers of an onion, you know that, you know, you peel off one layer, then you've got the next layer, you've got the next layer. You know, when you're trying to treat chronic pain, it's kind of like peeling off those layers of the onion. It's, it's not one thing usually that you can do to make the pain better. You need to keep peeling them off and peeling them off until you get to the, to the root of the problem because the problem has been going on for so long and the changes have taken place in the brain. It's no longer a simple problem in the tissue. And I think that's where people with EDS and HSD have so much difficulty because you know, they develop problems in so many different parts of their body and in so many different areas of tissue. So they're getting constant bombardment into the nervous system with, you know, pain generators. So it can be very challenging to keep that calm down and to keep the nervous system from developing inflammation. And that's called neurogenic inflammation. So I'd say that's, you know, one of the most common myths. Another one is that, you know, pain equals damage. So in, a, in the early phases and with acute pain, that's usually the case. Although, as we talked about earlier with genetics, we know that that isn't always exactly the way it works. So you think, for example, of, you know, we hear about people who were, they developed some, you know, terrible injury. Um, Drew Brees had all these rib fractures yet continued to play football. You know, how is that, how is that the case? He has all this damage and obviously he had pain, but yet, he didn't have outrageous pain. I used to anesthetize people. They'd come in with literally digits falling off, like a finger cut off and it's hanging by a thread. Are you in, are you in any pain? No, none. So even with acute pain, yeah, it's amazing. So even with acute pain, those genetic differences are huge, really, really huge. But with chronic pain, it's even more significant. Pain does not equal damage. There's many, many more factors that go into how much pain we feel. That's really interesting. And, and, and it also bears repeating what you said earlier about how once it gets to being chronic pain, the thing that's causing the pain isn't the thing that caused the pain originally, right? And acknowledging that it is sort of shifted to something else and has moved to perhaps a multi-systemic issue rather than the thing that originally caught, there may have originally been one issue or there may have been originally been a trigger, but by the time it's considered chronic pain, we're not looking to, oh, once you fix that ankle or deal with that back or whatever it might be, it'll be fine. Is that correct to say? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is where people with EDS and HSD have so much difficulty because oftentimes the proper diagnosis is not found in the beginning because people are looking for, you know, the more common things. So if you go in with ankle pain and they do just plain x-rays, I think a common misconception is that, you know, uh, if the x-ray is normal, then, then you're fine. You don't have a problem. Well, that only looks at the bones. That doesn't look at the soft, t- well, it gives you a little bit of information about soft tissue, but not everything. Even an MRI doesn't tell you about everything. And 
you know, these studies are static and they're done, you know, when you're lying down. So it doesn't tell you what's happening when you're moving. It doesn't tell you what's happening when you're upright. And so oftentimes people with EDS and HSD, they're not properly diagnosed when the problem first starts or the pain first starts. And so it isn't until later when all these layers have built up that, um, you know, maybe they are getting some more treatment options for their pain, but at the same time, now there's all these confounding variables. So it's harder to actually break those down. And I think a lot of people, a lot of patients, they want that one thing that's going to fix their pain. And while, you know, on the one hand, that's totally understandable, at the same time, it's just usually not realistic. Um, it's appropriate to think about, you know, uh, a combination of things that are going to, you know, if this one helps by 10% and that one helps by 20% and another one helps by 5%, like eventually that adds up to meaningful improvement. Mm-hmm. A cumulative effect. So, right. so then what then is your approach to the person with chronic pain? The comprehensive care plan is what I am prescribing. So a couple of things, first of all, I like to, you know, uh, First, we need to identify what is the source or sources of that person's pain. So, and it depends on where they're having pain. So I literally have seen, um, you know, 10-year-olds that have pain everywhere. Well, in that case, you know, we really need to address what's going on in the nervous system. They have one area of pain. Then we're going to really zone in on what is going on at the tissue level. What is going on in that, in that joint? Is there subluxation? Is there dislocation? Um, Is there some joint instability and joint malalignment going on there? Is there a tendinopathy that has not been adequately addressed? And so the first thing is we want to identify, you know, what the source of the pain is. And we may or may not do some additional imaging studies um, and some additional assessments with, you know, um, I may send them to a physical therapist to get a more detailed movement assessment or, to someone like yourself, a Pilates instructor who's super, super knowledgeable in working with people with hypermobility that can really get a good assessment of how they're moving and you know, really look for those dysfunctional movement patterns and try to work on those. Then another part of the diagnostic part of the workup is I also usually obtain additional lab work. Part of the challenge with people that have EDS and HSD is that their labs are usually normal. And this is very frustrating for people. And I think a lot of doctors don't understand that it's not that people want there to be something wrong with them, but they want an answer. They want to know why, yeah, they want to know why they're suffering. And it's, I think there's, that's one thing that's really, really misunderstood. No, they don't want something to be wrong with them. So sometimes if we dive deeper and we look at hormones and we look at nutrient levels and we look at more, um, you know, more detailed inflammatory markers, we can get some additional information because the routine lab work that we check most often is often normal. So that's, that's the next part that I do. And then I also really work with people on goals and, you know, what are, what are some realistic expectations? Um, We want to alleviate suffering and improve quality of life, but I try to, you know, inform them that, you know, I'm not going to be able to take away your pain 100% as much as I would love to. And in some cases, you know, we can do that. A lot of the times it's a matter of improving quality of life and improving functional capacity, but there may still be some residual pain. 
but instead of having like pain brain, like your pain's on, your brain is on fire with pain. Instead, you can enjoy things. You can enjoy your activities. You can enjoy being with your family and things that you used to do before you had the pain problem. So I kind of start with that. And then I use an acronym called MENS PMMS as a way of myself remembering and helping other people to remember the, the approach that I take. So the first M stands for movement. And that could be, like I said, working with you, know, with you as a Pilates instructor, working with a physical therapist, working with a gyrotonics instructor, working with an occupational therapist. We need to get people moving better before we can get them moving more. So we need to really assess their movement patterns and what are they doing in their day-to-day -day life? Because what they're doing in their day-to-day -day life can be exacerbating their pain and they don't even know it. So they may have some you know, poor posture when they're sitting. They may have some poor posture when they're standing or when they're walking, when they're laying down sleeping, for example. So we wanna work on, on those type of movement patterns. So that's the first thing. The second thing is education. It's extremely important that people understand how pain processing works and how they can take steps to improve their quality of life and how it, you know, they need to take a really super active role in the entire process. So I know we talked a lot with um, Dr. Beth Darnell about this, and she really has some great programs that she's doing to help empower people. And I've written a couple of articles fairly recently that might be helpful for people as well that talk about things like inflammation, nutrition. Um, one is on the Dance USA website, um, informational papers. And the other one I wrote for IADAMS, um, International Association of Dance Medicine and Science for the Bulletin for Teachers. And that is on treating inflammation. And that should be published very soon. So people could look at that also. The more informed you are, the better. And there are some very interesting studies that are specific to education that have been done. So one study, they took patients that came into the emergency room after getting whiplash injuries. And half of the people, they just did the normal standard routine care. And the other half, they did some very detailed education with them. And they explained to them that this pain is not going to go away immediately. It's, it's going to take time. And you know this is more what you can expect. And they really did some very you know, detailed education with them. The people who had the detailed education ended up having less follow-up imaging, less doctor's visits, and rated their pain lower than the people who had just the usual standard of care. Another super interesting study relating to this is, excuse me, they took people that had MRIs of their back. And in one half, they just gave them the usual report. And in the other half, at the end of the report, they said, these changes are consistent with the patient's age or are um, you know, normal for the patient's age, something like that. And they found that in the second group where they said these changes are consistent with the patient's age, those patients had, again, less follow-up imaging, less, they spent less money on healthcare. And so I think educating people is super important. I think those are two just, you know, pretty straightforward studies that help to demonstrate how important it can be and how we can actually save healthcare dollars if we educate people and, and really inform them about how pain works. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And then the N stands for nutrition. Nutrition is extremely important. I know we talked about that a little bit earlier, but if we're putting a lot of processed foods in our bodies, if we're putting a lot of preservatives and a lot of sugar in our bodies, we are going to have inflammation and inflammation is a huge driver of pain. So I can't, I cannot overstate how important nutrition is. So I strongly, strongly recommend that people listen to the episodes with Kristen because she gives some great advice. And in those papers that I mentioned earlier, I also talk about nutrition quite a bit there as well. And then the first S stands for sleep. We talked about sleep a little bit earlier. Um, having altered sleep greatly impacts pain. So some of the things more specifically that impact pain are, for example, if someone has an altered circadian sleep pattern. So if they're going to bed at two in the morning or four in the morning, and then, you know, sleeping for, in some cases, you know, they're sleeping for four hours or six hours and then napping during the day. And in other cases, they're sleeping for 10 hours or 12 hours and, you know, having difficulty getting out of bed. We get much better sleep if we can get to bed, you know, 10 p.m. or so, um, ideally, no, ideally no later than 10 p.m. The circadian rhythm is extremely important. All of our body is actually wired to the circadian rhythm and our cells are really um, driven by the circadian rhythm. So it's really important that we try to get to sleep at the same time every night and we try to wake up at the same time every morning. It's really important that we try to get exposure to sunlight as early as possible in the day because that also helps to set the circadian cycle. And you know, our, our ancestors didn't have electronics and the ability to have lights on at all hours of the night and be on our phones, et cetera. So we really have to factor into consideration the impact that our electronic devices have and you know, the ability to have electricity and things like that. So we wanna set a really good relaxing bedtime routine. We want to prepare the brain for sleep and we want to really work on relaxation practices during the day so that at night we can relax and fall asleep because relaxation is a precursor to falling asleep. And if we can't relax during the day, then we're gonna have a hard time relaxing at night. And it's very normal to wake up multiple times at night if we are able to relax and fall back to sleep, we don't even realize that we woke up. But if we're not able to do that, then we're aware that we woke up and have more problems falling back to sleep. So sleep is you know, extremely important. Um, there's lots of things that, that I do when I'm working with patients. You know, sometimes it involves supplements. Sometimes it involves you know, wearing things like those blue light blocking glasses, although it's better to have your electronics off completely. Um, ideally, electronics should be like put away in a completely different room rather than being like next to you in your bedroom. Um, and ideally, you use your bed or excuse me, your bedroom, you know, only for sleeping and, you know, personal type uh, intimate activities. But but otherwise, you know, you don't ideally you're not doing work in your bedroom. And I know that's hard for people right now. Some people are working from home when they hadn't before. So maybe they are doing more things in their bedroom than they used to, but that can impair someone's sleep. Um, the, next, the next letter is P and that stands for psychosocial. And we already kind of talked about that quite a bit. Um, but the other thing that I didn't mention under the psychosocial category is supportive relationships and non-supportive relationships. The psychological factors for chronic pain are very, very significant. 
And it can be extremely helpful to have a counselor or a psychiatrist to address these with you. And I think a lot of times there's a misconception that if you are referred to a counselor, referred to a psychologist, referred to a psychiatrist, that the person thinks that the pain is in your head. And that's absolutely not the case. As I talked about earlier, the pain is always real. It's always a subjective experience though. And it always is processed up here between your ears. So what happens up there is hugely important. So we wanna optimize that as best we can. And something I didn't mention earlier that I wanna mention now is ACE scores. So adverse childhood experiences. These factor tremendously in a person's um, likelihood for developing chronic pain. So if someone had um, a lot of bad things happen in their childhood, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, you know, uh, parents that were getting divorced, um, you know, medical problems, all kinds of things like that, but those people are more likely to have problems with uh, mood disorders when they get older. They're more likely to have problems with things like PTSD, chronic pain, et cetera. But there are certain treatments that we can do for things like PTSD. And if we don't address those pieces of the puzzle, we're never gonna get on top of the pain. So that's extremely important. So the next letter is M, which stands for modalities. So modalities could include things like acupuncture or acupressure. Um, it could include things like a TENS unit. And these can be extremely beneficial, again, when a person factors into consideration that this is one thing that we're looking for, you know, does it provide 10% improvement, 20%, 5%? And it's all relative to what, what is the cost? What are the side effects? What are the risks? If it's low cost and low side effects, then it's worth adding in, even if it's a lower percentage. If it's higher cost or higher side effects, then of course, you know, we want it to be more beneficial in order to keep it in the comprehensive care program that we're looking for. So that's modalities. And then the M stands for medications, the next M. So this is the third M out of three. So there's a lot of different medications that people will think of when they think of treatments for chronic pain some of which are things like antidepressants. And sometimes they can be helpful, but again, they usually don't solve the person's pain completely. So it depends on what all is going on with the person. Are they experiencing depression or not? Are they experiencing anxiety or not? And you know, these medications can be very difficult to stop. Antidepressants, to me, the, one of the bigger problems with them is the withdrawal type symptoms that people get when they try to stop and sometimes their doctor doesn't give them enough guidance and how to stop them. So that can be really challenging. Um, one of my favorite medications is low dose naltrexone and that's an anti-opioid and it's anti-inflammatory. It actually also benefits the immune system and it's also very beneficial for uh, neurogenic inflammation. It acts on glial cells and is what I, what's called a glial cell modulator, again, to help reduce inflammation in the central nervous system. And it can have very, um, very, very beneficial effects. Some people don't experience quite as dramatic effects in their pain level, but they still might experience the beneficial effects on the immune system, which right now are of course, super important. And this has to be compounded. So it has to come from a special type of pharmacy that can make its own medications. But this is where I really 
you know, uh, would love to see some real change where these medications, you know, be covered by insurance companies, because right now a lot of insurance companies don't cover compounded medications. So those are some of the medications that we want to use. Other medications that we would use are to control mast cell activation syndrome. Mast cell activation syndrome can contribute to headaches. It can contribute to abdominal pain. It can contribute to joint pain. And so if we get mast cell activation under better control, those types of pain can be improved. The last letter, the S stands for supplements. So of course we wanna get as many of our nutrients from our diet as we possibly can, but for some of our nutrients, it's really just not possible to get adequate amounts from our diet. For example, vitamin D, depending on where we live, if you live in, like I live in Wisconsin, so it's a pretty Northern part of the um, hemisphere. And so in the winter, it's virtually impossible to make enough vitamin D. Even in the summer, it's pretty hard. So virtually all of my patients are on a vitamin D supplement. Fortunately for vitamin D, we can monitor blood levels, which is very beneficial. For some of the other things that I would often recommend, um, we're not able to monitor blood levels, but we still know that they do provide beneficial effects. Um, a couple of the other ones that I commonly will prescribe, magnesium is one, because it can be very, very difficult to get adequate levels of magnesium from the diet. And we know that a lot of people with EDS and HSD have inadequate levels of magnesium. And that can contribute to headaches. It can contribute to muscle spasm and muscle pain. That can contribute to poor sleep. It can contribute to mood problems and, and chronic pain just in general. So magnesium is a super important thing to, to consider. Vitamin C is another one that's super important. Most animals can make more vitamin C. They can increase their vitamin C production when they're under stress, but humans cannot. So people who have EDS and HSD, it's like their bodies are kind of under constant stress. So having more vitamin C can be very helpful. And also vitamin C is a precursor to building connective tissue. So we wanna make sure that we have definitely sufficient levels of vitamin D in order to build stronger connective tissue. Excellent. So just to kind of sum all of that back up, because I know that that was a lot of information, but you have tried to break it down as easily as possible. So the comprehensive care plan that you tried, that you've put into place um, in your practice and that you, you apply a lot to different people, the acronym is MENS PMMS, and that stands for movement, education, nutrition, sleep, psychosocial, modalities, medications, and supplements. Yes. You got it. Okay. Yay. So, uh, so people who have hypermobility, how can they get help for themselves and, and how can they help spread the word about hypermobility disorders? So the first thing that I would suggest is that people look for credible sources of information. And also you want to get your information in the right dose. So we know that we can all fall down the rabbit hole of the internet these days. And it can be very easy to all of a sudden realize that like three hours went by and you spent all this time reading about various different things online. And if, if you keep reading about, you know, this person's pain and that person's pain and this person's problem and that person's problem, if they're not focused on solutions, then that can actually increase your stress level and make your pain worse. 
So you really do want to be solution focused and you know, make sure that you do connect with other people and make sure that you are getting good resources. But you want to make sure that you are doing it in a healthy way and at the right level. Um, the book that I uh, was a contributing author for, Disjointed, is an excellent, excellent book. And I don't I don't make anything off of the sales, so I'm not saying that just to, you know, uh, generate more sales, but it really is a very good book. There's 21 specialist chapters. Um, we all donated our time, all of us, and it, it really is a very, very good book. There's chapters on all different types of particular issues that happen with EDS and HSD. And the really excellent news is that this book is now available in multiple different countries. I believe it's available in every country in hard copy. And it's also available in an, an electronic format as well. There's a link to um, all of those options on my website if you visit the In the Media page. And I strongly recommend that people who are caring for patients with hypermobility disorders, people who have a hypermobility disorder, people who care about someone with a hypermobility disorder that they get this book because it is a really good resource. And there's also a lot of different organizations that have really, really great um, webinars. They'll have great you know, written um, resources. They have great support groups. They're conducting research. Um, and in no particular order, you know, I'd like to mention a few of them, which there'll be links in the show notes to this. Um, but uh, the Ehlers-Danlos Society, which is ehlers-danlos.com, has tons of great information. Um, Chronic Pain Partners, which is also uh, AKA EDS Awareness, they have fantastic webinars, lots and lots of webinars that are available on YouTube and also accessible through their website. Um, EDS Wellness has tons of great resources, lots of great information on their site. Um, the EDS Society also has a healthcare professionals directory that would be very useful for people to visit. And there's a newer organization called EDS Research Foundation. And I would also encourage people to check that out. Another thing that people can do is, you know, try to be a good EDS ambassador so that when you are talking to other people, when you're talking to your doctor, that they might say, oh, yeah, I remember that person that came in and had EDS and, you know, they, they were really trying to do the right things to help themselves. They were, you know, taking an active role. And if you come back to an appointment and, and I like in my case, okay, I'll, I'll talk specifically about me. If I, if I tell a patient, I want you to do A, B, C, D, and they come back to the next visit and they say, well, I didn't do A, B, or C, but let me tell you why. And they have really legitimate reasons why they didn't do it. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But if they just didn't do them, then that's, it's a little bit harder because I feel like I might be working harder than they are. So being a good EDS ambassador, I think, can really, really help. Showing that you really are, you know, taking responsibility, taking ownership of the situation and doing what you can. And don't be shy to share what your limitations are and what your challenges are and what, you know, what all it is that you're going through. Maybe you have financial limitations. Maybe you have, you know, something happened in that interim of time that really impacted your ability to carry out that person's care plan. You know, we understand life happens, um, but, you know, communicate those things to the best that you're able. And then I would also lastly suggest that people share these resources with their healthcare professionals, with their friends, with their coworkers, you know, in the appropriate dose. It's better to take 
a single article that um, you know you can highlight certain parts. Um, of course, I'm a little biased, but I wrote an article in 2017 that talks about pain management in hypermobility disorders. Again, you can access that off of my website. But if you if you copy that article, which is pretty manageable, and and just highlight certain parts, then that's much more manageable than taking in a stack of articles to you know to your healthcare professionals. And I know Jen, you've talked about that you'll give to your dancers like that single sheet from the EDS society, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll suggest that they take that in and say, you know, can we talk about this? I think this might apply to me. If we can't talk about it today, can we talk about it next time? Like that's an mm -hmm. excellent approach. That's a fantastic approach. I love that. Yeah. I think it's important when you are approaching healthcare providers to, um, to be clear about what you want to talk about and what you want to say before you go in the and not just have everything that you want to talk about, but figure out what's, what's my angle. What am I going to try to say and be respectful because these people have been to school and they have studied hard and the good doctors will acknowledge that they don't have time to study and learn everything. So they are willing to have that conversation with you and, and to be pointed in a direction to read more. They just can't do it right then. So handing over that sheet, like you said, having one article highlighted um, is so much more effective and saying, when I come back next time, can we talk about this? Or can I set up a phone consult or a telehealth consult as a follow-up for us to talk about this, right? I think it's so helpful and it makes them respect you knowing, as you said, you don't want to feel as the provider, like you're doing most of the work. So it makes them feel like you have, you as the patient have put in time and effort into it and are asking them to to learn more about it so that they can help the patient and make, make the patient better, right? Yes, yes, you phrased that very, very well. And you're, you're absolutely right. The time that you have for that encounter is precious. So, so use it very, very wisely. You know, um, keep in mind, if you start going off on some tangent, you know, you're probably cutting into time that, that could be spent doing something, talking about something different. So exactly really get your thoughts organized in advance, really think about what you've been struggling with the most, where you think the biggest problems lie. You know, um, it's helpful to have things written down. You can even hand it to the first, the person who rooms you, basically, you can hand it to them and say, this is what I wanna talk about, these are my concerns. Make two copies. So you have one and they have one and yeah, make their job easier for them because I think a lot of people don't realize how hard it is nowadays to practice medicine. There's so many crazy regulations that we have. There are, you know, practices where they see, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 patients in a day. And, and you can't see 60 EDS patients in a day, which is why a lot of us, you know, we're not able to take insurance. Um, seeing people with EDS takes a lot of time. So try to use your time in that visit as well as you possibly can really focusing on the key issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I will add for myself, my own personal practice, if I'm going to see a new doctor, I will often write up a one page summary of my health history and the things that I think are germane um, and hand it to the person who rooms me and say, will you give this to the doctor so they can read it before they come in the room? And they can read through that and see, oh, she has this, this, and this, she wants to talk about this. So it kind of helps prepare them doctors with new patients, they're not always sure of what questions to ask if you're coming in there with something specific. So it's 
sometimes helpful for you to tell them ahead of time, here are the things that I think might be germane. Obviously, they're going to ask their own questions, but I have found it very helpful to give them information ahead of time. They can read it before they walk in the room, and then we can start the conversation, and it kind of just moves a little more efficiently. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's that's a brilliant thing to do, and it's it's like imagine if somebody had to take War and Peace, the book, and right. you know, and they had to review that when they're seeing you in the office, like that's so incredibly long. But if instead they had the cliff notes, you know, mm -hmm. basically you are giving that person the cliff notes version of, of you. And I know this can be challenging to do. I, I came across a really great um, uh, physician's website where he talked about how to do this. And we can put a link to that in the show notes as well, because it can be challenging to know what do I include? What do I leave out? And so this, um, this physician who wrote this after being a chronic complex patient, you know, realized how important this was and how even as a physician, it was challenging to sort out what to include, what, to, what do you leave off of that single piece of paper, especially when, you know, uh, you, if your history is more and more complicated. And of course, over time, we acquire more and more imaging studies and labs and whatever. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to keep deciding I'm going to take that off the list and put this on because we can all only digest so much information. Right. Right. Well, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation on pain and trying to find some constructive ways to approach it and manage it. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Gosh, I, I think we covered a lot of really, <laughs> a lot of really good things. It's, it's so hard because pain impacts so many aspects of a person's life that mm -hmm. I think, I think the one thing that I do want to add is that rather than, um, I, I'm sure Jen, you've heard of the, uh, maybe you'll know actually the name, I know you're so much more red than I am, you know, the elephant and they talk about like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, but there's mm -hmm. also the elephant where, you know, if each person is feeling the elephant and one only feels the tail and one feels describe a different piece, right? Right. Describing a different piece. I think people can get really overwhelmed when, when they have chronic pain and it's totally understandable. If we just try to put, keep putting one foot in, in front of the other and just try to start nibbling away at it and just start chipping away and realize that any step in the right direction is progress and we're looking mm -hmm. for progress not mm -hmm. you know it's not an overnight thing you didn't get where you were right. overnight so you're not going to get to where you're going to be overnight you know and because you're probably not going to be where you were when you know 20 years ago or something like that but we're looking for again improved quality of life improved function and that kind of thing mm -hmm. excellent and so where can people find you so the best place is hypermobilitymd.com, or they can also go to bendybodies.org in order to find all the episodes of our podcast. And I would you know, recommend people look there also. Oh, and I should mention hypermobilitymd is also where I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Perfect.
And I will say that if you as a listener have more questions on pain, we have addressed it with other experts in a few different episodes from Bendy Bodies. So please check out the show notes here or browse through our episodes on your favorite streaming platform because we do cover it in a variety of different angles. And I think you'll find it very useful. As always, it is wonderful to chat with you. I feel like I could sit and talk well, we often do sit and talk for hours about all of this stuff because we're both nerds that way. Yes. <laughs> but um, thank you very much for chatting with us today and sharing your expertise. And um, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD as we chat with Dr. Linda Bluestein. And thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.